Good morning. You know, uh, we have the kids with us this morning, so I'm just going to kind of do this for you to help you kind of engage with us this morning in our service. Uh, because it was really interesting this, this week, I had a fellow come to me and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm interested in building a boat. And I said, oh, well, I know a guy. You got to let that sink in for a minute. And you know, uh, someone asked Jonah why he was a little apprehensive about the ocean. He said, well, it's kind of a little fishy to me. Uh, You know, those are groaners, those are dad jokes. Revelation chapter 2. Just to break the ice this morning. Revelation chapter 2 is where we'll be focused. We're going to start, first of all, we'll read... 1, 20 to 2, verse 7. Revelation chapter 1, 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we again are humbled that we're able to be here this morning. We recognize that uh, the table is the center of our worship. And we sing and we pray and we celebrate. We are exalting and lifting up the Word uh, this morning. But ultimately, the center of our worship is You and what You've accomplished for us on the cross. We thank You for the salvation available to us through Christ. We thank You that this book of Revelation, which every book is the center and focus of, is You. To reveal Christ, to reveal Jesus Christ to us. It's not a revealing of uh, disasters. It's not a revealing necessarily of the Antichrist. We're not unveiling those things. You are using those things and showing us the prophecies to come. But Lord, it's about You, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, uh, we want to see You. We want to hear from You what You have to say. Lord, to the church in Ephesus, but to our own lives, Lord, the the way in which we need to respond to you. So I pray that your spirit would work and move and that it would use this word, your spirit would use the word to penetrate our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
in chapter 1, we discovered that the book is about the revelation or the revealing, the unveiling, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. It's written by John, and John identifies himself as a brother, a fellow, or a partner in the tribulation and the suffering for the gospel. He's writing this from the island of Patmos where he's been banished on account of the Word of God and his testimony of Jesus Christ. John writes what he sees. He's going to write what he hears. And then he's going to send this book to the seven churches. These churches are laid out here for us, even in chapter 1, who they are. And Jesus tells them to write them. They're the churches that in modern day today would be Turkey, in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John will turn and to hear, well, first of all, he's going to hear a loud voice, and then he's going to turn to see this voice. John describes what he sees in chapter 1, verse 12 through 20. It's one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the churches, holding, uh, holding the angels of the seven churches in his right hand. This one is clothed in a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. His hair like white wool or like snow. Flaming eyes with fire. Feet like burnished, burnished uh, bronze. Refined in a fire. A voice roaring like waters. He's holding seven angels in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. And his face is shining like the sun in full force. This is a description to help us understand what John sees as he sees this picture of Jesus. Obviously, the picture represents what Jesus is. And we looked at that last week, the representation of Jesus in this vision that he has. John immediately, seeing this vision, will fall on his face at the feet of Jesus it's as if he's dead in a sense. He just lays out in, in full force down below. The one he sees puts his hand, his right hand on John and tells him to fear not. Then, John, then he tells John to write the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place. Right? He's given him these instructions. Here's right Therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are currently, and the things that must take place. The things that must take place will reference again that this book that he's writing is a book that is a book of prophecy. And so John is to write what he sees. So we're going to now jump to verse 20 of chapter 1 because Jesus is going to explain to him what he saw when he saw this the seven stars and the seven lampstands. As for the mystery, so it would have been a mystery. What are, the, what's, what are these things that John sees around Jesus and in his right hand? As far as the mystery in your right hand, the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven angels and the seven uh, golden lampstands are the seven churches. So this is the mystery, a mystery of the seven stars, the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus interprets these for us so that the mystery is solved and he doesn't leave us wondering 
what, what these things are. What we do know, so there's some things that have been debated surrounding the angels of the seven churches. The word angel appears 76 times in Revelation. It's a Greek word, agalos, which means messenger. And when it's referred to as far as the heavenly angels, this is the word, it's angelos, which means messenger. The word appeared here. And then it will uh, appear again each time as it references the churches. It will say, to the angel of the church in Ephesus or uh, Smyrna or Pergamum, each time it will reference the same. It's the angel of, the messenger of. So what do we know? Well, we know each church must uh, had an angel there uh, that referenced it, and it was in the right hand of Jesus. We know the, that. That's what's been clearly given to us. At first glance, though, it seems strange that we would write to an angel as a heavenly being, why would John need to do this? Right? So there's automatically some questions as far as what comes up here. An angel. This is an angel of the church in Ephesus. There are three main uh, thoughts on what the angel could be. The messengers are uh, pastors or leaders of a local congregation. The angels are symbolic or figurative, not literal angels and not literal messengers. Or these are angels. These are heavenly beings, guardian angels over the seven churches. Adam Clark believed that the angel of each church was its pastor or leader. Angel to the church here answers exactly to that officer of the synagogue among the Jews called the messenger of the church whose business it was to read, pray, and teach in the synagogue, Clark would say. The problem with that is that there's some challenges because nowhere else in Scripture do we find pastor, elder, overseer, or leader of the church referenced by using anglos. So I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's interesting that that becomes a challenge for us to work through. As for the figurative, not literal uh, interpretation, the problem is that I'm not sure what it is figurative of, if it's figurative. Uh, there's no description. Jesus would have, I would think, have given us what that means. We can uh, see through this thing that it's what, what would be the symbolic reference to this. So, it's difficult. So even though it's hard to wrap our mind around the reason to write to the angel at the church of, it is the literal rendering of Eglos, and it's the consistent use of it. Although, as I continue to study through this, I, I still wrestle through it still in the logical, make sense version of it. It does seem to indicate more of a leader of the church of, or the pastor or elders of the church. Regardless of which rendering you think makes the most sense, or what seems to be most logical as a deduction, it is important to notice the location of the angels and why they're there. They are in the right hand of Jesus. Right? They are in His hand. Which is fascinating. To, and I think we need to continue to focus on the location as a primary thing. As David Guzik says, this is a place of safety and strength. Even the problem churches, he says, that will be described in the next chapters 
are in the right hand of Jesus. Right? And their purpose is to rely, to relay the tr- entrusted message from heaven. The Word of the Lord to each of these respective churches. So the, they're in the right hand of Jesus. We know that for sure. And we know the reason. The reason is to pass on the Lord's message to the church. That we know for sure. And that is the main reason. It's just a side note. We call it a bunny trail, I guess. Uh, That's the usual term that we use. In our Western culture, we've adapted the use of a word that we use for pastor as a title. Pastor Todd, Pastor Mark, that sort of thing you read through uh, on someone's website and it's pastor this. We've used this as a title here in our culture. There's nothing wrong with that, but we do need to recognize Scripture's consistent in the use of the word pastor. Is a, it's a verb, right? It's an action. It's not a title. Nothing wrong with a title. Just remember, we've got to make sure we're understanding Scripture for Scripture that pastor is a verb, right? There's no such thing. The office is elder or overseer, Right? Elder overseer is the office. The role and responsibility of the office holder is pastoring, shepherding. It's in the Latin, and it's used as a word meaning care for. It's a function of caring. It's an action in the church. That being said, elders are ex- you know, they're extorted to, they're encouraged to shepherd the flock, to serve as overseers, caring and protecting the flock. The distinction is important to keep in mind, even though the common use is the way we use it for pastor. So, I am Todd. You can call me Pastor Todd. It's not a problem. It's not gonna, I'm not going to be offended by that. But the office that we hold is overseer, elder. Those are the office of what we hold uh, here. I kind of bring that up just because uh, in our last meeting in November, we we were informing you that uh, Forest Baptist Church in the past has kind of dived into trying to see whether an affiliation with an organization, uh, like a partnership with other churches of common uh, belief and stance, was something that we were interested in doing, and we resurrected the idea that we would be looking into Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, and that was one of kind of the, the notes of which we were kind of wrestling through as far as that whole area regarding pastor and, and uh, office. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there for you to think about and be thinking about as we continue to strive down that path of looking to see if we are going to be joining in with something like the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists. We'll have more information to share on that as we go. Back to the main path. If there's a bunny path, I guess there's a main path. Let's zoom in on the churches. The letters to the seven churches share in a similar fashion uh, how they are laid out, how they are structured. Each has some features that are important to kind of understand. There's an address to a particular congregation. These are real. They were real congregations that were meeting at those specific locations. So there's an address that's given to that. There's an introduction of Jesus that's given, a description of Uh, what we already really have seen in chapter 1. Each one of those descriptions you can pull from chapter 1 as far as how Jesus is laid out. So so there's an introduction to who Jesus is, a description 
of who He is. There's a statement regarding the condition of each of the churches. Kind of like accommodation. Uh, You hear the words, and here's what you are doing well. And so He'll give recognition to that. Alright, so there's accommodation. There's a verdict from Jesus regarding the condition of the church. Uh, A criticism uh, in most cases. A command from Jesus to the church. This is what you're called to do. A general exhortation to all Christians. And that exhortation is in the words of He who has an ear to hear. And every time in each of those seven, it's repeated. To He who has an ear to hear. If you're listening to what He's saying, finally there's a promise of reward. right? And so, here it's to the overcomer, but in other cases there's a promise that's attached to the hearer and who actually responds to it. So we can see the state of each church of these seven churches. We can see the state of them. The state of our local gathering. And the state of our own personal walk with Jesus all relate to these churches. So each of these, by looking at what Jesus has to say to each church, we are looking at the church, we are looking at our local congregation gathering, and we're looking at our own lives as we look through these. So 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. Right? To the messenger of the church at Ephesus, here's what we are right. I have a recommendation for a deeper discovery about the letters of these churches, you can go to YouTube. So this is my recommendation to you. If you want to dig a little bit deeper into this, I would encourage you to go to YouTube and type in the days of discovery of the seven churches of Revelation. Days of discovery. It's it's an hour daily bread presentation. It will feature Dr. Joe Stolwall. And he will walk through the seven churches on site, providing some excellent additional perspective to these churches. And so if you want to kind of dig a little deeper, I'd encourage you to do so. It's very beneficial. Ephesus. According to the Enduring Word Commentary, Ephesus was a famous city in the ancient world with an equally famous church. Paul ministered in Ephesus. For three years, you can look at Acts 18 and 19 and 20. Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos served there. Acts chapter 18, find that they were there discipling even in the beginning before Paul. Paul's close associate Timothy was there working and pastoring in Ephesus. So according, according to strong and consistent historic tradition, he says, the Apostle John was even their ministry. Now that's according to tradition. We don't have any scriptural references for that. So he says, surely, uh, Robertson says, surely it was a place of great privilege and of great preaching. The enduring word goes on. Ephesus, this great city was also world famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center of religion. Ephesus had the notable temple of Diana, a fertility goddess, worshipped with immoral sex. This tremendous temple of Diana in Ephesus was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was supported by 127 pillars. Each pillar was 60 feet tall and was adorned with great sculptures. 
The temple of Artemis was also a major treasury and bank of the ancient world where merchants, kings, and even cities would make their deposits and where that money would be kept safe under the protection of their deity, Diana. This was one of the, they had one of the largest libraries in the known world that was here in Ephesus. Ephesus had a huge marketplace which was the center of its cultural, social, and economic hub. Like this was a massive marketplace where people would vendor their wares. And in fact, to enter into there, they, you were required to take some incense and you were to put that incense there towards the goddesses and also to Caesar before you could even enter into the marketplace. In addition to the temple of Diana, there were 14 other temples to other gods. And there was even a temple to Caesar. A massive temple that sat up at the highest point. That temple of Caesar. Believers living in Ephesus lived in a spiritually dark place. I have my illustration here for you. It's a darkened box. I have the word, you can't read it in chalk, but it's Ephesus. This is Ephesus. Ephesus was a dark place. Dark spiritually. Dark in many ways. A place that challenged believers to live without compromise. A place that ostracized them if they wouldn't even bend the knee. I remember I mentioned putting some incense. So, as a believer, would you be entering into the marketplace? This was a challenge to them. They, they would have to wrestle through these issues uh, as far as their life and their compromise. It's a dark light scenario. It's a dark light situation. The church in Ephesus represented the candlestick. The church of. Now we've placed the candlestick in Ephesus as you recognize the fact that a candle lights up in the darkness. We see the description of Jesus to Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks amongst the golden lampstands. This emphasizes Jesus' authority. And it emphasizes His presence. And it stresses His centrality around the church. Without Christ in a church, what do we have? Empty religion. A social gathering. A social club, I guess. Christ is center. That's why we make Him center. Because He is what we're all about here. And that really changes everything. So when I come, I'm coming for the center. And yes, that impacts our relationships with one another as we'll see. But this is what the main point is. This is our main menu. is Jesus. He's the center of why we're here and what we do. It emphasizes His authority and presence over the church. He says, I know. He says, I know. I know your works. If you even just stop at the two words, Jesus says, I know. So, even just if we just stop there this morning and you said, let me just reflect for a moment on my own life. And then the words, two simple words, Jesus says to me, I know. We may not know. You may not know. My heart, you may not know what's going on, but Jesus knows. I know. And this first part is a good thing. He knows. So it's a, it's, it's a compliment to the fact that He knows. 
He knows what we're doing. He knows nothing's hidden from him. It's a verb in the perfect tense, meaning I have known. I've known what you are all about. And here's what he, he says he's known. I've known you're hardworking. I've known you're persevering. I've known you're intolerant of sin. I've known that you're knowledgeable in the truth. I've known that you're able to discern true leaders from the faults. I've known you cannot bear those who do evil. I know. I know you've, you can't bear those. I know that you test and you measure what others say and do according to the Word and to their fruit. I know these things. And he, he's giving them an affirmation that these are good things. I know them. The Ephesian church pursued doctrinal purity with a passion. Paul warned the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It, it Really, they, they took Paul's words seriously. All right, if you read through the book of Ephesians, it's to the church in Ephesus. They were, really on, they were eating up what Paul had said. From this commendation of Jesus, we know that the Ephesians took Paul's words seriously and his warning. They were persevering, enduring for the sake of Christ's name. Like they, they made Christ's name a priority. Right? We're doing this because of His name. And that is a good thing. They were abiding under pressure. They would have had many pressures in Ephesus. Pressures to compromise. Ah, oh, well, you know what? Just give in a little bit, right? Like, what's this really going to hurt? They were pressured to live out the Gospel. So you could, I boiled it down to four D's. The Ephesians had deeds. They had discipline. They had doctrine. And they had determination. That would really sum up. And in a sense, you look at the Ephesian church and you say, that would be the church you'd want to be at. That must be an amazing church. Verse 4, but I circled that a few times. But, or nevertheless, or on the contrary, the Greek word Allah, it uh, is one of the harshest, the strongest words that could have been picked for this. It's saying, I have this against you. But I have this against you. What does He have against them? They're standing strong. They're determined. They're doctrinally sound and disciplined and have many good deeds. I have this against you. You have left your first love. You've abandoned the love you had at first, is what it says. You've abandoned. You've left it. You've abandoned it. The disturbing reality is that it is possible to think one is actively serving God. There's a lot of activity happening maybe in our lives or in the church. There is passion for truth and purity. There is a testing and a toiling and enduring. 
But without genuine love for God and love for one another, it can become meaningless. Right? What, what's the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To love. That's the greatest command. In a sense, 1 Corinthians 13 resounds it over and over again. If you, if you have these gifts, if you have this service, it, and without love, it's just like it's a, a, you know, a clinging symbol. Making noise. It, it can become meaningless. It's not the symphony of sound. It's the clanging of a cymbal as opposed to that symphony of sound that we would want. Affection. Someone said affection determines effectiveness of our actions. Because it's a matter of our heart. Again, those things aren't bad. We're not throwing them all out. We're saying though, if we haven't got the love for God and the love for one another, they don't match up. They're not effective. This is a serious problem, Jesus says. We know it's a serious problem because if they do not repent and return to their love, then something will happen. Their light will be removed. The church of Ephesus is told a few things. First, let's remember. Remember where you've fallen. Well, that's a, that's a bad thing in my estimation if you've fallen from somewhere. So they've fallen from what they used to have. They had it in the beginning. There was major movement in Ephesus in the days of Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos. And Paul and Timothy, God was moving. They're moving so much that it created a riot in the town. Right? The, the industry of the idol selling was impacted greatly because people were following the Lord and getting rid of these things and not buying them. And the city was in uproar. In a sense, they actually wanted to execute Paul and they brought uh, his associates to the Colosseum. The picture that you saw up there. Big Colosseum. And they were ready to get rid of him. Right? It created a stir within that city. And so there was much happening. God was moving powerfully. Remember what it was like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember what it's like to love your neighbor as yourself. If you go to Acts 18 and 19, the Gospel, turn the city upside down. Is it possible that sometimes a church gathering can be so preoccupied with God's Word, God's standard, God's name, that it abandons God's love. That's what Ephesus is saying, I think. We need to be careful to hold both in perfect tension. In a sense, one would flow to the other. Right? Our love will motivate us and flow to our actions. Our actions flow out of our love for God and love for one another. Repent. Repentance means to stop. All right. I lived in Quebec. Stop didn't mean stop, but it does mean stop here. Okay? Quebec was slow down, I think, because they had so many of those everywhere. But here it means stop. Stop means stop. Repent means stop what you are doing. 
Stop going in this direction. I wish I had a U-turn when I'd show you that. It's a U-turn. Taking that turn and going a different direction. That's what he's saying. You're going in this direction. And he complimented him for all that, but he says, you need to go back. You need to go back in this direction. Lord, how do I do it? Wouldn't that be the question? I, I want to, but how do I do this? Well, he says, return to the things you did first. Can you recall what it was like when God opened your eyes and you were drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ for that first time? When the light switch went on and you, you repented and you turned to Jesus and He brought you from death to life, He brought forgiveness into your life. What it was like when you received the salvation of the Lord for the very first time, the joy of your salvation, the love for Jesus that bursted out of your life, and the love that you had for others, because you had such a desire that, wow, what God's done here, I just got to share this thing. It's, it's changed my life. That desire, that's what he's saying, let's go back. Get back to the Word. Get back into prayer. Get back into that growing in the love of God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Return to where we started from. That's what he's saying. Remember, repent, return. Because if we do not, our lamp will be removed. God's lighting light will be removed from that area. Not practicing their faith in love is sin. And if they do not repent, God's going to remove them from His presence, from the impact that they could have had. Verse 6, who are the Nicolaitans? We will deal with this in Pergamum. I apologize, but they hated it. God hated it. We'll look at it when we get to Pergamum. Verse 7, He's going to exhort them. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Each letter closes with this imperative command, which is very similar to Jesus' invitation found in the Gospels. Same invitation. clearly said, hey, if you, if you have spiritual ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. Many of those parables went over the heads of everyone because they didn't have those spiritual ears to hear what Jesus was saying. But for those that did, it penetrated the heart. It is Christ's desire that those who hear the words of this prophecy, Revelation 1-3, not only hear the subject matter of this. We could go through this book and we could focus on all of these subject matter areas. They're important, but they're not the significant part of what we're going to look at. We want to know what the hope is in Christ. Right? So that's the same thing. We want to understand its significance. This phrase recognizes the reality that those whose hearts are not open to Christ may hear the words, but they may not understand the message. May we be people who say, I want to understand the message, Jesus. I want to understand what you have to say. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Christ had been speaking. But notice now the Spirit is speaking. Right? To him who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is the source of all spiritual revelation and illumination. Right? It illuminates the Word of God. 
It uses the Word of God to penetrate our hearts. Notice that this letter is for the benefit of. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus. Yeah. Church of Smyrna? Smyrna, yeah. Pergamum, yep. Churches. Church today? Yes. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to us even today. That's what we need to know. This letter is for the benefit of all seven churches, all churches through history, and to churches today. And so we close with a promise to the one who overcomes or conquers, the one who takes this and goes, ah, yes, I hear it, and I want to do what it says. I need to change. I need to respond. I need to repent and return to them that do, right? To them that conquered their coldness of heart and their lack of love seen through their loss of their first love, there's a reward. The reward is a return to Eden. A restoration. Eternal life. You eat from the tree of life. Well, we first saw the tree of life in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. It was in the middle of the garden and it provided eternal life. So much so that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered into their hearts, God said, we got to get them out of here because we cannot have them eat of the tree of life. Why not eat of the tree of life? In their condition. Because eternally they would remain in their condition of separation from God if they ate of the fruit of the tree of life. They need to be banished. Praise God they were banished because without being banished they would eat and eternally live in the condition of an unrepentant heart. And yet God had a plan of salvation for them and for you and for I that extended past the garden. We will see the tree in Revelation chapter 22 in the end where we will enjoy God's presence forever and we will eat of again the tree of life. Also recognize to the Ephesians, this had an additional meaning. In Artemis's, Diana's temple, there was a tree shrine that represented life, new life. And in a sense, the Ephesians tried themselves to find hope there. Right? That's what it was all about, is finding this hope and significance through this religious act of worshiping this deity. And, and really, in a sense, it was finding, the, they thought, the tree of life. David Guzek again says, this was meant First, in the eternal sense of making it to heaven, which was no small compromise to a church threatened with the removal of Jesus' presence, it is also meant in the sense of seeing the effects of the curse rolled back in our lives throughout walking, through, though walking in Jesus' redeeming love. As we walk in Jesus' redeeming love, we see that re, re, rolled back. In the paradise of God, a garden of delight, a place to walk with Him, to talk with Him. God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It also means where God resides in heaven. To the overcomer, there is a renewed assurance of God's salvation. There's a restored guiding light in the presence of their community as they uphold and love one another and hold fast in deeds, discipline, doctrine, and determination so that God may be glorified in them and through them. Thank you for the hope 
that we have if we are overcomers, knowing that we have the presence and promise of paradise, eternal life, and a light that will shine in our community. You want God to use you as a light? Return to your first love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Make Him number one priority. And then He will shine through in all that you do. Heavenly Father, I pray, as we consider the words here that You've given to the church of Ephesus, some accommodation, you, you, you praised them for what they were doing, but there were some things against them that they needed to change. Or their light was threatened to be removed. May we not take this lightly in our own church. Lord, that as a church, we return again to that passion and love for Jesus. And our passion and love for our community that does not know You. Our passion and our love for one another. Lord, that can only come from You. May we return to that. May we examine our own hearts. How are we in our own lives? Lord, may Your Spirit just challenge us again afresh this morning that we are returning to that love we had that You had given to us. Love only comes from You. And so, Lord, we want that to be a part of our lives. And so may you give us that as we seek to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen.